Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Windermere in the car park at Booths with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, David. I always say that, don't I? But there again... It's always me. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> it is usually me. Uh, it's been actually pretty awful weather of the last week or so, so it's great to come out on a day like today. There's been mm. a little bit of showers coming through, but it's now we're about two o'clock in the afternoon and the sky's clearing and I anticipate a dry afternoon, so I'm really looking forward to it. I love these conditions. You know when you get that mix, don't you, of dark clouds and little shafts of light coming through and, as you say, it is clearing after a terrible deluge. Uh, I couldn't leave my house for three days, Mark. The valley road was flooded. How did you cope? Well, I wasn't marooned, but the beck next to my house made one heck of a roar, but nowhere near as big a roar as most of the Lakeland becks and rivers. Mm. There's been some really bad weather lately. I really have felt for people. Fortunately, by the looks of it so far at least, uh, no major damage. Now, we're doing something today which I think is a country stride first. We're actually climbing a fell for the second time. Where are we going today, Mark? Many people relate to this fell as being something seminal to Alfred Wainwright. And yes, it's Orist Head above Windermere Station. It's a great spot. We went up here with Chris Butterfield. We're going to just soak in the majestic autumn prospect from the summit. One of the reasons we're back here today, Mark, relates to our guest and a new path that's been created actually to access Orist Head. The Lake District National Park Authority have created a new route up the fell, uh, partly using some rediscovered old tracks that they found on old maps. And it means that um, those who are less mobile are now able to get to the top of this wonderful viewpoint which as you said meant so much to Alfred Wainwright among many many others. There's also a clue there to our guest today. Who is our guest today Mark? Our guest today is the chief executive of the National Park Richard Leaf, a man who has steered this National Park over the last 14 years. I haven't had a chance to have a really good chat with him for quite a while so this will be very special to me today. Yes, as you say, Richard has been in post now just over 14 years, has overseen a period of change, of declining uh, revenues from the government, of rising visitor numbers uh, in the park, all kinds of challenges which we'll talk about today, but also some of the opportunities for the future uh, as we celebrate 70 years of the National Park, of the Lake District National Park. And we've also done something a little bit different today as well, Mark. We've invited questions from our listeners to post to Richard, so we'll dedicate uh, a little bit of the podcast to hearing from him, answering listeners' questions. I know that Richard is waiting for us just at the start of this uh, wonderful new route up onto the fell. So let's go and leave the car park. Let's head over to meet Richard. Well, we've escaped the turmoil of traffic and noise that goes with Booth's car park and the railway station with the buses and everything. And we've come up the beginnings of the signposted way up onto Orest Head. We're at a key point in the company of Richard Leaf. And it's great to see you, Richard. Nice to see you again, Mark, too. Oh, fabulous. We haven't seen one another for a while. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, well, I've been in the Lake District now for about 15 or 16 years and I've been privileged enough to have the job as the Chief Executive of the National Park for 14 of those years. I originally come from Nottingham and uh, I'm a geographer by background and I did my training in that at the University in Sheffield. It's a significant year in terms of this particular National Park. 
Yes, it is. We are 70 this year, designated in 1951. The Lake District has been a national park for all that time. Very significant time for the Lake District, indeed for, for many national parks that were also designated in that same first year. After the legislation which created national parks in the UK was put on the statute in 1949. So, Richard, this is a point of uh, bifurcation. There's two paths here. Can you give us a description as to where we're going and why? We're going up to Orist Head, which is a very famous viewpoint here in the Lake District. It's where many people who first arrive in the Lake District experience their first view of the lakes and mountains of the National Park. It's very handy for the railway station and the bus station. And there's been a path up it for many, many years, and, and we've restored that to a really good standard so that it can join a suite of paths that we have in the National Park that can be accessed by people with more limited mobility. And right here there are two ways. One way is super easy that you could take a wheelchair up and another way winds its way through the woodland but the surface is also now well suited for people with more limited mobility. So once again a much wider range of society can now get to the top of Orest Head and experience the view that we're going to have. I can't wait. Well it's lovely coming up this winding walled way. I've never been up this way. What's the history of this particular route Richard? Well this route that as we say goes up to Orest Head was originally made in Victorian times and uh, an easy access route was put in in order to get a charabang, a horse and cart, <laughs> from Windermere Station up to the top, and it was a very popular thing to do at the time. Well, it was the thing people did everywhere. People went up Helvellyn uh, from Thurlspot, didn't they, on the horse? That's where you get the Whitestones route. We've known for a long time that there was an easy access route up here, mm -hmm. and with a little bit of research, we were able to uncover precisely where that route went, and even identify the turning circle at the top, where the horse and cart turned round and we've more or less replicated that route back to the summit of Orest Head. Now let's take ourselves back in time in terms of the National Park. How did National Parks themselves come about? The National Parks were a very important thing in the country's psyche at the end of the Second World War. There was a strong feeling that the nation and its people needed to heal from the experiences of war there was also a strong feeling that many of our towns and cities were becoming very polluted as a result of the concentration of industry there. So there's a real sense that we needed to preserve and hang on to our green lungs, our green spaces in, in the nation and make sure that they were available for everybody, particularly those people coming back from the war, working in the factories of the, uh, of the cities at the time, that they could find solitude, health, enjoyment in the great outdoor spaces of our national parks. So a real movement to connect people with the land and the nature at the time. And the funny thing for me is, it's really come full cycle over that 70 year period. And those reasons of rehabilitation and of reconnection with nature, I think, are as important now as they have ever been. Even the escape of pollution in cities, I think, has never been more true at the moment. And so our national parks are playing, once again, I'm pleased to say, a really important role in the nation's life. What is it that national parks do, and perhaps even more important, what do they not do? Our job is to look after the, to the national park and make sure that it's available for people to enjoy make sure it's conserved and its special qualities as we call them are, are looked after. Um, along the way we've picked up various powers to help us do that. One of the most significant would be planning. So we are the planning authority for the whole of the National Park as all park authorities are in the UK as a whole. Um, but we don't repeat many of the things that you'll also find in local authorities that also exist in the same area. So emptying of the bins and things like that, looking after the roads, filling potholes, are all still done by our local councils in the area. 
You set the tone, as it were, for what the National Park is. You don't have all these other panoply of tasks, but you have the actual job of steering a path. Yes, indeed we do. And our main job, picking up that point, is to agree a management plan for the National Park. Uh, in our case, we call it our partnership plan because we write it with 25 other organisations, all of whom have a stake and some role in looking after the National Park. Well, I'm really looking forward to this walk. We've got not too far to go, I know, but it's lovely just listening to the gill coming down and the overbow, there's a, it looks like a yew tree there. There's a blue sky, so the sun's radiating through the trees. Let's pound on. Well, we've come up to the junction with the conventional route, the, the route that I'm familiar with from the past, and there's a lovely set of benches with wickerwork behind them on the north side of the path, just at the junction. And uh, I've got a lovely view of wonderful canopy of trees reaching up to the blue sky. Wow, what a spot, Richard. Well, we've talked about the National Park. It would be really interesting to know a little bit about your motivation and what led you to this particular role. Well, I guess it goes back to when I was at school in Nottingham and uh, I was first brought to the Lake District on a geography field trip. That, for me, started to combine two lifelong interests in uh, studying geography and getting outside. And I remember being blown away by the size of the mountains in the <laughs> Lake District. I just, I just didn't know we had features like that in England. No. It was a real, um, a real eye-opener for me. And from there I went on to study geography at university and then that led into jobs and uh, I picked up my first job working for what was then the Nature Conservancy Council. Uh, over time it's now become Natural England and I, I worked for them in various roles for about 15 years before being transferred with them, interestingly, to the Lake District to be the first regional director for Natural England here in the northwest of England. You've got a fascination in nature, that's wonderful, as well as your geography. My professional training was as a geomorphologist, which means I uh, study landforms and I, I worked for many years as a coastal geomorphologist. So coastal landforms was my way into conservation. Uh, something I'm still really, really interested in. And of course, the Lake District has a coast, Absolutely. which we often forget. So how perfect, um, how perfect is that? So your very first trip, where do you arrive upon? Well, it was a field trip from my college in Nottingham, my sixth form college in Nottingham, to the Yorkshire Dales. And we were based in Ingleton and did some work up on, uh, up on Ingleborough above there. But we came for one day into Great Langdale, and I remember walking up to Langdale Coombe to study the drumlins of oh. Langdale Coombe. And I was just blown away with the landscape I saw there. Langdale Coombe. You didn't get to Tea Leaf Tarn, did you? Which is what Joss Naylor pointed out. <laughs> yes, he did. I heard that. I should have done, given my name. I should have made it there to see what was there. See if I could find Joss's tea bag. <laughs> so your family holidays when you were growing up, were they to hills or what kind of setting? Living in Nottingham, right in the middle of England, we would often head to the coast of England or of Scotland for our family holidays. But the Peak District was very close by, so I was a regular visitor to the Peak District, and I think that's one of the things that first turned me on to the, the fantastic riches of the great outdoors of the uplands of England. Fast-forwarding through your career, you saw this job coming up, and what was it about it that really tickled your fancy? For a few years previously, I kind of had my eye on national park jobs and a few of my colleagues from Natural England days had become chief execs in national parks and I thought, that looks a really good thing to do. Quite by coincidence, I transferred to live in Kendal with Natural England just at the point that this job came up. So I thought, well, what have I to lose? I may as well have a go at that. Oh, yes. I remember the, uh, the Westmoreland Gazette had been 
really critical at the time of the leadership of the previous chief executive. And they were, they were wanting to say, look, you don't need to advertise nationally for a chief exec. You can just advertise in our paper. And, um, and so they made a great thing about when I got the job of saying, Kendall Mann gets top job, <laughs> even though I'd only been there for three months. So you were appointed to this remarkable job in this absolutely stunning national park. What were your feelings? Oh my goodness, this is a huge job and what a size of responsibility because I became very aware that everybody loves the Lake District and everybody has a view on what's right and what's wrong for here. And it can be a, a tricky path to tread to get all of that right. And uh, so I thought, well, I better do my best with this job. So what is your daily pattern within the role that you perform? Well, it's really, really varied being the chief executive. I get to do a lot of different things on a lot of different days, like coming out here today and talking to you. So that's something I, lo I like about it. I suppose I have three or four key things that I do. I need to look after the staff. We've got 200 staff who need looking after and uh, setting direction for what we need to do in the National Park. I, I also report to the board of the National Park, which has got 20 members on it, made up from local authorities and some appointed by the Secretary of State. And I spend a lot of time working with them about the strategy and direction of the National Park too, and then turning that into action. I'm also responsible for looking after all of our partnerships on the ground in the park. And perhaps most important of all, I also have to deal with our relationships with the government, who give us almost half of our money these days. We've touched on your professional life. How do you use your recreational life? Well, I do enjoy a busman's life in many respects in that I love nothing more than getting out in the National Park when I'm not at work, be that in the evenings after work or at weekends. And I spend lots of time in winter and summer going out for runs, long walks, paddle boarding, open water swimming... But my favourite thing to do, if I'm honest, is during the winter when there's snow here to go skiing in the fells, which I think is fantastic. Have you skied down Helvellyn? I have skied the face of Helvellyn on many an occasion, yes, I'm pleased to say. Have you been down Catsty Cam? I have skied Y Gully on Catsty Cam. Only once have I ever caught it in condition in the 14 years I've been here. It's a rare thing. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought I'd throw that one in. <laughs> it was a curved ball, that one. We're losing time on our ascent, so let's get on, Richard. Yeah. Listen to those leaves. And the uh, beach at this time of year is fabulous. The path has opened up, the walls are gone. We're flanked with some low laurel leaves, but fundamentally it's beech trees. And it's our first chance to see Windermere behind us, a great glimpse through the trees, a magic lake. You talk to us about the challenging balancing act. You've got visitors, you've got farming, you've got biodiversity. How do all these things come together in your role? That's the nature of looking after the National Park, I think, is reconciling these different demands on its use. And if I were to summarise it, I would say it's a, it's a question of finding the sweet spot between all of these things. And it's very definitely a place that's, that's not at the extremes. It's not all about the visitors and not the residents. It's not all about farmers and not the wildlife. It's not all about rewilding and no farming. It's a combination of all of those things somewhere in the middle. Although there isn't an actual middle. Although the actual middle is a, is a movable feast and, and our job is to steer that middle towards whatever direction we feel attention is most needed in the park. So how on earth do you come to finding that middle point? There's always a nice tension in the debate. So if people from whatever community there is are feeling squeezed or not getting enough attention or action in the plan they will let us know but fundamentally it's about looking at the evidence and every five years we produce uh, a thing called the state of the park report which gives us a comprehensive understanding of all the data 
and shows us how well the park is performing against a, a set of nationally produced metrics. So we spend a lot of time focused on that middle to work out what's happening in the park, what do we need to do in response to that. So in your time as Chief Executive Officer, have you observed changes, movements in that midpoint? Yes, I have seen changes along the way. When I first started, there was a feeling that the economy of the park is overlooked, hadn't been paid attention to. Now it feels as though people are saying to us, you pay too much attention to the economy and you need to pay more attention to conservation and looking after the fabric of the national park. At the same time, we've seen real ebbs and flows in the farming community and how they have done in society as a whole. And and right now is a very critical time for them as we have exited the European Union and the payment system is going to start to change radically. So I've certainly seen quite a lot of flux in that and staying ahead of that and making sure that we've got the right balance, doing the right things for all the sectors of the park that we look after from communities to visitors to the economy to conservation and of course to farming making sure that we've got those things properly addressed in the park is is the challenge and everybody has a view on that and in a sense of course everybody is right it's their park it's not ours what we have to do is try and make those judgment calls and ensure that on the whole we're moving forward in the right way in 2010, the National Park was receiving what, £7 million to maintain its function for each year, whereas now it's £5 million just over. This is shrinking at a time when visitor numbers are going up, I don't know, 20%. So the pressure on the area is intense. When I started, I didn't realise I was going to be spending so much of my time presiding over a declining budget from government, but that's certainly been the hallmark of the public sector as a whole for the past decade or so. So, in a sense, there's nothing unusual in that. Um, Another way of looking at it is we've actually managed to maintain a steady income to the authority. So our annual revenue is about £10 million a year. And despite significant reductions in the government grant, we've kept that going by being able to make more money from grants and the commercial operations that we've run in the park. The commercial income to the park authority has become very important. And this year, for the first time, it's actually a bigger slice of our income than the government grant, just over 50%. So we've been lucky in a way as a national park to acquire over many years of our history, things like car parks, visitor centres, property. We had 186 separate properties at one stage. And It has been a focus for us to really look at that property base and understand what are we doing with it? Why are we holding on to all of those assets? Can we use it commercially both to make money but also to do a bit of our job? So we don't own cafes and visitor centres and boating centres simply to make money. We also use them to make sure that people can connect in the right way with the national park. But we do make profit from there. We make about a million pounds a year worth of profit. And that goes to support the government grant in making sure that we can do our job of looking after the National Park and its fabric, its ecology, its cultural heritage in the best way that we can. You have properties that there's been talk of going out to tender or selling. Uh, Is that a strategy? So we look at all of our 180 or so properties and ask ourselves the question, do we need to own it or could it be better looked after in somebody else's ownership? Primarily, we're driven by making sure that if we dispose of property, it goes to the right hands, to people who can look after it in the right way. And that's a big driver for us. But Owning, as we do, 4% of the National Park in land area terms 
can have a, an interesting effect on the organization. It can skew us and our resources to concentrating on that 4% that we own at the expense of the 96% that we also need to look after. So we've had to ask ourselves some tough questions about whether or not it's necessary for us to own bits of land in order to ensure the public interest in it is maintained. And by that I mean it's looked after, it's conserved, it's farmed often, and crucially, there's good public access to it. The alarm in the background, we never get away from cars. So COP26 is very much in people's minds as we're recording this episode. And it's something, climate change, that is very dear to your heart. Tackling the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis has been right at the core of what I've stood for in this job for since the beginning, really, since the start for 14 years. And I'm delighted to see it get to this point where it is absorbing so much of the nation's and the world's attention, particularly while we're hosting COP26 at the moment. Um, And boy, do we need it, because we are not making the kind of progress that we need to make uh, as a planet in order to make sure that we've got a, a safe climate for the future. I've always been determined that the Lake District do its bit and demonstrate how we can show leadership in this respect and use the fact that we're visited by nearly 20 million people a year to give them a glimpse of what a low-carbon future could look like and enable them to see that it's not such a bad place after all and that maybe they can do something in their own life to make a move towards that. And in practical terms? Well, one of the things that we've tried to do over the last few years is make sure there are plenty of alternatives to the use of the private car to get around and travel. And in particular, because it's a national park, to get out and get on your feet or on your bike and move around. And I don't think the national park uh, has been, or still is for that matter, properly set up to move people around in that low-carbon way. But we have put more new rights-of-way and cycle paths into place in the last 10 years than we'd done for the previous 50. So there's been a big expansion of off-road safe cycling and walking routes. This is an example of one of those walking routes. And we've tried to encourage people to leave their car in one place and get out and travel around the National Park using other means, the buses, the boats on the lakes, and under their own power, walking and cycling. And the advent of the electric bike has been a real boon for the Lake District in that respect, and I'm delighted to see so many places now renting them. So our visitors have genuinely got the opportunity to demonstrate a little shift in their lifestyle. Another thing that I'll mention that's become increasingly important is our diet and what we eat. Eating locally produced food that hasn't had to travel very far I think is very important and Cumbria as a whole has an astounding range of great local food. We now also know that we need to eat a lot less meat and I would advocate that when you do eat meat you meet locally produced, high standard beef and sheep farmed locally and where better than here in the Lake District National Park. Covid has brought into highlight the great benefits of being in the outdoors and people have learnt to discover their doorstep countryside. Has the Lake District still got a central part in that personal recovery of health and well-being? It absolutely has, Mark. And one of the things that I have personally been astounded about following the pandemic is the amount of people that have discovered or rediscovered their national parks and their green spaces in general, wherever they may be. We've seen a real sea change in the visitor to the national park as people have been locked down in towns and cities, small flats, wherever they may live, not able to do their usual things or travel abroad for recreation. And they've returned to the National Park or come for the first time to the National Park in their droves over the course of the last 18 months. 
This has been both at the same time a marvellous thing to experience, a new, much younger, much more diverse visitor to the National Park. And at the same time, it's been very challenging to manage all of those numbers and to set people's expectations about how they should behave in a place like the countryside or the National Park here. But overall, for me, it has been uh, a rejuvenating experience to see so many young people discover the great outdoors. And I've personally witnessed a real change in the kind of people that you see when you're out on the fells, much younger, much more diverse, much more representative of what you'd find in an average urban space in the UK. It goes back to why we were set up in the first place in the 1950s to give people a green lung, somewhere to escape the city and recover from the war. Now it's giving people the opportunity to recover from the pandemic. We've touched on a whole range of factors within the National Park, but there is tourism and the pressures that over the last two years have become ever more intense. Does the Lake District receive too many visitors and tourists? Not for me it doesn't because I've witnessed so many people getting so much from their personal experience here in the Lake District and I couldn't look anybody in the eye and deny them that opportunity. Now for sure too many of them bring a one ton metal box with them (laughs) and uh, car pressure can from time to time be too great in the National Park. So we need to persuade people to come to the park but ideally don't bring a car and travel around by other means whilst they're here. And then I think the park is is big enough to be able to cope with the numbers of people who come, particularly if we spread out a bit and we don't all come to the, the central honeypots of the Lake District, for example. This is a classic thing, of course, you get one or two places, like Air Force, you might say, there's a great focus. Everybody thinks they have to go there because there's so much publicity from the tourism angle. They assume that's where they've got to go. And we've seen that certainly over the course of the last few months with people being very influenced by things like Instagram and pictures from the top of very popular fells like the old man of Coniston or Helvellyn. Of course, as you and I know so well, Mark, if you just walk just to the next peak along the ridge from some of those fells, you'll see nobody, even on the busiest of days. So I don't think there are too many tourists in the Lake District. And my goodness, the businesses that depend upon them really need to see people again after suffering so much loss throughout the lockdowns of the pandemic. So we welcome visitors. uh, And what we would like them to do is nudge them to appreciate the National Park a bit more and nudge them to travel around in the most sustainable way they possibly can. We need to get the Ordnance Survey to put the highest point on the Helvellyn Ridge on the top of Nethermost Pike. (laughs) (laughs) And they would assume they were correct. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Then get an Instagram blogger to turn up and say, I am at the proper high point on Helvellyn. But people do go to the wrong high point on Helvellyn quite a lot, don't they? You go to the trig point, not the actual summit, which is a little bit further round. It's a lovely approach to the kissing gate that leads onto the summit. The view back down onto Windermere, it's absolutely gorgeous. You look down onto the houses of Windermere, the town and in the background I can see the two tops Gummers Howe so you've got a great view looking south and I turn around by the kissing gate and there's a plaque here slate plaque this stone was placed here in the year 1902 by the inhabitants of Windermere in remembrance of the late Arthur Henry Haywood of Ellery as a mark of Gratitude to his widow and daughter, who, as a memorial of him, dedicated Orist Head to the use of the public forever. Fascinating thing to see, and it really reminds you of the sense of community of this place. I'm going to go through the gate now, the kissing gate. 
we've moved on and we've reached the summit and wow, never fails to excite me, this majestic view. I'm naturally looking towards the Kentmere Fells and up a Troutbeck Valley in the village of Troutbeck, strung along the hillside with uh, Red's Crees above. But my eyes naturally therefore move on towards the north and the northwest, where I can see the Langdale Pikes. What a stunning view. And there's a bit of cloud just dragging off Great Gable. And then it's drifting on towards uh, Great End and Bowfell and Crinkle Crags has got a bit of cloud on it. And Weatherlam has got a bit of cloud. Strangely enough, Connison Old Man has got the greatest amount of cloud. You can see Clare Heights, the wooded uplands, and you look down the lake towards Gummer's Howe. And the lighting at this time of day, backing the cloud, looking to the west, is majestic. But as I now move round from Gummer's Howe, I can see through to Morecambe Bay, and looking to the left of that, further southeast, you get the Bolland Fells and the uh, Wernside Ingleborough area there. It's a bit clouded over, but uh, I can see Arant Howell and Calf on the Howgills. I could go on for hours. And would you be able to do the same, Richard? I'm sure you could go on for hours. I would hope I could. You should test me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I too never fail to be amazed by this place. You can understand why Alfred Wainwright, when he came here, was blown away. It's the place where I come often if I have a visitor. So I bought my sister from Nottingham up here because it's the easiest place to get to that gives a proper feeling for what the Lake District is all about. All those ingredients that are there. And it is a great gathering place. You've got a new seat on the summit where I've not seen before. This is about the, only about the fourth time I've been here. I've not, definitely not seen that. It is a very popular place for people to visit. And, and, and you never come here and have it to yourself. There's always a number of people who've come up for the view, as we're experiencing today. And one of our frustrations was um, it was a bit of a... It had become a bit of a... Of, of a slightly disorganised summit. It was a bit messy. There were lots of benches just scattered around and the ground wasn't very easy to move on if you had limited mobility. So that was part of our motivation for sorting out this summit without making it too overdone, but just to make it easier for people to get to and for the place to reflect the special view that you can see from it. It's an amazing place to come to and we've enjoyed a, a majestically long view all the way around here. But looking at the long view, we're celebrating the 70th birthday of this national park. Uh, 70 years on, what would it be like, you feel? Well, that's a really good question. In one sense, in 70 years' time, I want it to look pretty much like it does now because it's very special and it's very beautiful I think there will be subtle changes to the landscape that we might not necessarily notice stood here from this point of view, but for sure it will be more biodiverse. We will see more wildlife in the National Park, and I hope the quality of the rivers and lakes continues to improve. I also hope there's the same blend of farming taking place in the National Park alongside a, th a thriving local community and a business community that's able to support and cater for the many visitors that I hope we will continue to see in 70 years time. So my hope is um, for some continuity in the beauty of the place whilst evolving it to make sure that it doesn't suffer at the hands of biodiversity loss and the climate crisis. And continuing this in long view you've got 14 years under your belt probably a few yet. Have you got any really high points in that period? Yeah, for sure, I think I have. Uh, oddly enough, they're, they're connected with some real low points for the Lake District. So Storm Desmond was quite a watermark in my time at the National Park. A devastating time for the communities of the Lake District experiencing a flood of the proportions, even under the climate change scenarios, I didn't think I would see in my lifetime, yet it's here now. And the high point for me is the way 
my team has responded to that and repaired the, the damage that was caused to the rights of way. Over £10 million worth of damage, bridges, styles, footpath surfaces, an entire footpath along Keswick, from Keswick to Threlkeld, which used to be an old railway line, completely destroyed in places. And we've restored all of that, almost all of that, and we've built it back in a way that it can withstand floods better than it could before. So hopefully it survived the the terrible floods that we experienced again in the National Park last week. Low points? I guess... I guess if I were to be frustrated about things, it's often around the amount of time it can take to achieve change in the national parks. So we've known for a long time that we need to really change the transport system to better move people around in a low-carbon way. So surely we should see some electric buses on the national park now and the off-road cycling infrastructure should just be perfect now not in the future and achieving change getting people to understand why we need to do that recognizing that that will mean some change in the park is and has been taking too long we really need to redouble our efforts and get that stuff in place quickly i'd like to see all bus routes have a path associated with them or linking services. You know, green paths would make a world of difference in that green thinking. Absolutely. And, you know, we haven't got a consistent path for, for bikes that goes all the way through the National Park along the spine of the, of the marvellous 555 bus service that I know, Mark, you've written great walking guides <laughs> off and I'm a big supporter of. It's a wonderful service. It needs to be electric and we need to put some infrastructure alongside it, as you say. If you could give one bit of advice to the younger you from your experience, what would it be? I think it would be be patient, Richard. Uh, change will come but uh, sometimes it needs to be at the pace of of the many people and competing interests that we experience here in the national park i I think it's really important to have a, a clarity of vision of where you want to be with the place and to relentlessly talk about that as the destination even if you feel that we're moving there glacially slowly, we are at least moving there, so be patient. There's a metaphor on the summit of this fell. (laughs) Glaciated rock. Yes. Well, there's a bit of a chill coming into the air, Richard, so uh, I think we'll climb down the hill a little bit. But on the way down, I'll ask you a few of the listeners' questions. We lost height and got into a bit more lee of the trees. Uh, we had lots of questions from our listeners. Uh, so I picked out 14 questions. We've one from Martin, amongst others, on transport. Question about tourism pressure. Over the past two years, in particular, we have seen blocked roads with access problems for mountain rescue and local buses, and yet tourism numbers still grow. How can we tackle congestion and private car use? Well, I have a lot of sympathy with that and we've been trying hard to encourage people not to bring their car to the National Park if they can avoid it. There's very good public transport links here. Or indeed, if they do, park once, park sensibly and well and travel about by other more active means. That said... I think we have had an extraordinarily difficult year in that respect, in which, for some of the year, public transport simply hasn't been running, so there hasn't been the option to do that. And more latterly, as we start to move around a bit more and the public transport system opens up, there's still a tendency for people, if they have a car, to want to bring it for health reasons. So we've seen a bit more car use than we otherwise would in the National Park. But generally speaking, I would really like to encourage people to use the good public transport systems that we have here and be active when they're in the National Park. Ali has come up with a top of all question. Planning application has gone in to make a temporary 150 car park space near Portinscale, 
a permanent one. Does the National Park need more car parks? Well, because of this very special year we've been in, we have actually doubled the car parking capacity in the National Park over the course of the summer to cope with that influx. And I think we have got away without complete traffic chaos that was predicted to occur through that action. Do we need those car parks all the time? No, we don't. We can we can take them down. We will continue to look carefully at particular areas where we know local residents have been experiencing problems with parking and Porting Scale is exactly one of those. David came up with a related question. Is the Lake District National Park Authority, alongside Cumbria County Council, looking at congestion charges which might help alleviate pressure either in selected valleys or in the whole park? We're not looking at congestion charging for the park. It would be a very big and complicated thing to do and may even deter some of our visitors from coming in the first place. So we're more interested in pursuing a strategy that tries to get people to not bring a car in the first place or if they do, park it in one place and leave it there. There were a couple of rather interesting and cute, I thought, initiatives over the last summer using buses. What were those? Yes, in response to the pandemic, we tried to put on some shuttle buses to particular popular places that people wanted to visit. They were Buttermere, where we had a shuttle running from Cockermouth, and into the head of Wasdale from the bottom of the valley, from Wasdale Valley, where we had essentially park and ride schemes operating, and they were very successful over the course of the summer. So I think it points to the kind of things that we would like to do more of in the future. Another one is Helen, a university student in Carlisle. I cannot access the Lake District by car, I don't own one, or by bus. I can't afford £15 bus fare. How do people like me and others in low incomes, how can we be welcome to the lakes? I think that's a really good question, Ellie, and I'm right on your side. We need to create easier ways for you to get to the national park and enjoy it just as 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 other people are are able to it's a mission to get there there are no easy answers to it Uh, maybe you can find some friends and car share that might be a way of of making it affordable and increasingly i think we're going to see more schemes whereby you can you can hire a car by an hour and ideally an, an electric car and one of the things that we've been doing is making sure our car parks and visitor centers are geared up to cope with electric vehicles and have some charging points in them and that's that's the case now at all of our main centers moving on to farming Ellie asks, with continued financial pressure on our farmers, will pods and tents replace the Herdwick? That's a really good question. And first of all, it's true to say that there there are very difficult financial pressures on, on farmers now, particularly as we transition from the EU payment system to one of our own. I, I hope that farmers will continue to benefit from good support from the new schemes for doing things that look after carbon, biodiversity, water and soil quality. And we're doing all we can with a scheme called Farming in Protected Landscapes that we have at the moment to make sure farmers are ready for the transition that's taking place at the moment. Of course, providing for visitors remains one of the top priorities in terms of a diversified income that keeps our farmers farming. So... We will continue to look very carefully at making sure we get the right balance on farms of diversified income through things like campsites alongside more traditional farming. John, another question related to farming. Uh, Is consolidation, transition to tourism provision and an influx of wealthy hobby farmers inevitable in the next two decades? I don't think it's an inevitable transition. No, I think there are benefits in farmers looking to the tourist economy to supplement their income and keep them farming and keep them looking after their traditional farms, for sure. Um, When farm tenancies come up, we're quite often seeing a lot of interest from new younger people. But alongside more farming for for nature and carbon they are also passionate about rearing livestock in traditional ways here in the lake district
Ali, the issue of water quality in our rivers, and particularly raw sewerage in Windermere, has made national headlines in recent weeks. What role can the National Park play in fighting for clean rivers and lakes? Yes, it remains a really important uh, area for us to look at. The rivers and lakes of the Lake District must be as pristine as we can possibly get them. And so making sure that we go to work to properly understand the sources of pollutants into the lakes and rivers and go to work on reducing those sources is really important. In particular, that means working with farmers to reduce their nitrate um, input onto the land, which then makes its way into the rivers, as well as looking at um, storm water overflow drains and over time replacing upgrading those, as well as making sure that properties around the edge of the lakes have got proper functioning septic tanks that aren't leaking into the lake. Water quality is one of those things where as a park authority we don't have any direct powers, but working closely with our partners, particularly the farmers, the environment agency, the water you company, United Utilities, collectively we can go to work on this problem and make water quality better in this national park. Richard, uh, which is representative of many letters, or should I say emails, we got on this subject, how does green lane motoring fit with your programme to tackle climate change and to work for nature recovery in the Lake District? Yes, it's a topical issue in the National Park at the moment, the use of off-road routes by 4x4 vehicles. Um, there actually aren't many routes left in the National Park where there is unfettered access by 4x4s. We're down to a relatively small proportion of our 1,300 kilometres of rights of way in the National Park. So if you're out on a walk, you're very unlikely to encounter a 4x4 vehicle. I don't think they fit particularly well in the National Park where they, where they do occur. But it's important that people understand that these are existing rights to use roads. They, they are roads, they just don't have a tarmac surface on them in place. So um, for us to extinguish that legitimate right, we have to have rightly a high bar of evidence of damage and harm that they are causing. And where we don't have that evidence, we're not able to intervene or take any action. Uh, Sally, uh, the Sanford principle, in the past decade, it feels public enjoyment has trumped conservation. Who will stand up for and assert Sanford? Well, I, I, th I think in, in many respects the Sanford principle is an oversimplistic way of looking at some of the decisions that we have to take, particularly around planning in the National Park. The truth of the matter is, I think, as a planning authority, we've, we are very good at making decisions around the right thing to do in terms of the sustainability of the place. We have a really good understanding of the environmental limits that occur in the national park. So we're able to very subtly judge how damaging any one development is likely to be. So it's not simply a question of is it conservation or is it tourist infrastructure. It's much more nuanced and subtle than that. And I think over the course of the last 10 years, by and large, we've taken the right decisions around those things to enable our visitor economy to grow and enable us to offer more experiences in the National Park for a, a wider range of people, whilst at the same time making sure we pay attention to its special qualities, particularly its biodiversity. Margaret, to caption carbon and supercharge biodiversity efforts, should we rewild the National Park? Well, I think we're doing a lot of rewilding the National Park as we speak, and certainly responding to the biodiversity crisis is really, really important. But let's not do that at the expense of the cultural heritage. So it's not, for me, an either-or between farming and biodiversity. I passionately believe we can have both. Does that include getting beavers back? Yes, why not? Why shouldn't we bring beavers back, as the <laughs> Prime Minister famously said? And indeed, I think we are. Debbie, in the National Park, we have an ageing population. The few young people who grow up 
in and around the park migrate outwards in search of better paid and higher skilled opportunities. How can planning regulations, particularly around affordable homes, help address the imbalance? And how can the park play a role in diversifying the types of jobs on offer? Yeah, super question and um, one that requires uh, quite a big answer. But briefly, just let me say we're doing all that we can to um, to build affordable housing, affordable and local needs housing in the park. And for the first time, we've allocated land within the park to do exactly that. So we take that element of housing really seriously. The wider point about reducing workforce and, and it is absolutely true. And we need to do all we can, particularly where we're losing young people from the National Park, to attract other young people who would really appreciate the stunning natural environment that we have here to come in, set up businesses, diversify the economy and work here in the, in the National Park in Cumbria. And I'd encourage anybody to do that and to move here and gain the benefits of living here. Ruth, the Lather Estate withdrew their planning application for houseboats on Grasmere before the planning authority had a chance to consider it. Would the National Park have green-lighted? No. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of a short answer? <laughs> Come down through the wall on a beautiful path which you've installed, uh, Richard, uh, or your team has installed, <laughs> and by a lovely bench here. Could you describe what we're looking at here, Richard? Yes, a, a great path installed with some terrific benches and, and artwork at the top there by Chris Brammel. And this is the top of the old coach and horses track. And we can see where the old turning circle used to be, where the Victorian charabangs would disgorge people on their way up to the summit and turn around this little knoll just here so that the coach and horses are facing the right way to take people down when they've taken in that fantastic view. Actually, listeners, when you come up here, you'll come up here and you'll think, what, what was Richard talking about? Because there's, there's a fence in the way, a double fence. But actually, there's a little rocky knoll there. And actually, if you look at it, yeah, you could just decipher in the turf the little trackway. That's wonderful. What we've come to now, this is quick fire questions. Have you got a favourite fell? Always difficult, but I do love skiing off Helvellyn. Wainwright or Wordsworth? I guess it's a difficult one, but because I love being outside and walking so much, probably just about Wainwright. Maybe Harry Griffin or somebody else? Well, is there somebody else you would choose who's a writer? No, marvellous book by Graham Ooney that I've just bought well, about the Wainwrights. The Wainwrights. Uh, let's see now. What is your favourite view? Favourite view is a tricky one. I do really enjoy the view straight down the Langdale Pikes from the terrace in front of Brockhole on Windermere, the house at Brockhole, our visitor centre in the Lake District. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, when you're on a long walk, or even a run in your case, uh, where do your thoughts wander? They often wonder to the ecology of the high fells, interestingly enough, and we are seeing a transition as we've reduced the pressures from too much sheep grazing which we've had in the past. And so my thoughts go to whether nature is making a fast enough recovery in the high fells or not. If you were to be brought back into one period in his Cumbrian history, which period of time would it be? I would love to be here when the mines were in operation. I would really have enjoyed seeing Glenridding Mine, for instance, at full swing at the turn of the century with all those buildings and that activity around it. It must have been amazing to to witness. Mining and all the activity in the hills were so intense and it's something that's difficult for us to comprehend now. Your Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Oh, that's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean... I, I think, ironically enough, it would be Alfred Wainwright. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the dichotomy there between 
uh, all he did and continues to do to encourage people out into the fells with his own personal disdain for, too, for finding too many people when he was out on a walk. Well, that's why there's rocks on the fells, so that uh, the ghost of Wainwright can hide behind them. <laughs> Have you got a favourite pub? Well, it's a really difficult question because there are a lot of fantastic pubs in the Lake District. I do appreciate what the National Trust have done with Stickle Barn, where they've put the carbon value of their menu on display. I think that's a great thing to do. So I'm going to go for Stickle Barn. Um, if you were Prime Minister for the day, uh, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? And I think you've covered it several times already. I would make sure that um, we had all the money that we needed to do to look after this place. How would you describe your perfect Lakeland day? Oh, well, it's probably going out for a nice long run in the fells, perhaps around the uh, head of Great Langdale, up to the summit of Bowfell, back to Stickletown and down and finish off with... Uh, a pint in the stickle barn well there you are that's right beautifully rounded off when the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that is special and means so much to you where in lakeland might that be probably looking down the front face of helvellyn and say i can't believe you used to ski down there journey's end and we're back in Windermere it's dark Mark it's a reminder that the clocks went back only a couple of days ago I think there's a sound of an owl in the background oh there's a chill in the air even the owl is hooting with a chill in its beak a chill in its beak is that definitely possible I don't think it is but uh, it's shivering in its claws anyway Mm. all kinds of mixed metaphors there now first up Mark I think they've done a great job with this new route. I wasn't aware of it, but it's um, it kind of mirrors the original route at some points, doesn't it? And at others, they've created this whole new, much easier way up. Well, certainly the lower stages was the old Sharabang route, yeah. which I was unaware of. But higher up, they've created a new route. And it's a lovely route to be applauded. The view from the summit, particularly after the deluge of the last week, just so lovely to see that side light that autumn side light across the fells uh, look it just never ceases to be spellbinding actually the fourth time i've been up Orested, you can see by the congregation of people that we've seen today that it is a place that draws people and has done since the railway came to town one doesn't normally see windermere in context but you do from Orested. Yeah, and the other thing that's really nice about it is that feeling of convivial community up there, isn't it? People are up there just smiling at the view and just chatting. And I I guess it kind of fits into the context of today's conversation because clearly it's a massively complex job being the chief executive of something like the National Park because we all have a feeling, don't we, that it kind of belongs to us, the mm. Lake District, and we impose our own vision of what we love about it. You know, we, we try not to bring politics really into these podcasts, don't we, because I think a lot of people... They come to the National Park and shackle themselves yeah. from the chatter, the noise. They want to come here to be free of all that. So we don't want to be making too much of a play on the politics, although inevitably when you get landscapes, people, environment, all coming together, there are pressure points. And Richard pointed them out. Yeah, one of the key things I thought that came out was, I mean, of course, the National Park doesn't have as much power or indeed very much money as we might think and so those partnerships and that visionary leadership I suppose that's what matters isn't it you can't deliver a huge amount of change on the ground particularly given you own so little land so it becomes that kind of working with partners and of course the Lake District partnership this body of 20 plus charities and other organizations you know is a key part of that so some regular housekeeping this is episode number 68 
for 67 previous episodes, point your browser at www.countrystride.co.uk. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a line, say you like what we do, say you don't like what we do, suggest where we want to go to next, uh, you can email us by going to the website and clicking on the Contact Us button. We're on social media, Mark. At Countrystride One, Facebook and Twitter. Next up, I think we're probably climbing Blencathra. Any other news that we want to spread the word about, Mark? Oswater Way Guide has just gone to the printers today, a new edition. And uh, towards the end of this month, the Ulswater Walking Companion will also be going to the printers. If we can get enough dry weather days for me to test the final six, I think, walks from it, I have to say I've really loved that so far. What a great valley, and I've explored loads of bits of it that I didn't know about. So thank you for that, Mark. Um, I think that's us for today. From a very dark Windermere, we're saying goodbye for now. Thanks for joining us on Country Stride, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>